Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Boyery, and as always, I'm with a past recipient of the California Science Center's Woman of the Year, Dr. Lucy Jones. We thank our individual supporters who help underwrite the work of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society through Patreon. Would you consider sponsoring this podcast for as little as $5 per month? Because your support enables us to serve even more communities. Simply go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Now let's get to it. Here in the U.S., March is Women's History Month. So for this episode, we wanted to take a look at Lucy's history as a woman in science. So Lucy, when did you first realize you were going to be a scientist? That's an interesting question. In some sense, I always knew it. And in another sense, I never decided until the last minute at ending college. From the time I was a little girl, I played math games with my father. I went with him to his office to look at spacecraft being made. But I had a lot of interests. And I went into college with a double major in physics and Chinese. And it was really only in my senior year of college that I decided I was going to be a scientist and started applying to graduate school. Well, let's go back to that high school experience. How did that prepare you for college and really beyond college, even as a scientist? We need to remember that I'm old enough that when I was in high school, the women's movement was really barely getting going. So that the assumption was that women never did math and science. When in a guidance class, I took a test about aptitude for math and science and got a perfect score, the teacher accused me of cheating and made me retake it directly in front of her because girls just didn't get tests like that. I responded by just thinking she was stupid and I went off and did my own thing. And really what helped me get going was going to Taiwan and having a Chinese math teacher who didn't have a cultural bias against women doing math and science, who saw what I was doing and made me not take part in the regular class, but taught me on the own so that I could do two years of math in one year. And that message that I was special, I should be doing something like this helped carrying me through at times when We didn't see this going on so much. You go from this high school experience to very different high schools experiences, and then you get to college. It's time to apply. And now we know that you graduated from Brown because it's in your bio and everybody knows (laughs) that. But how did you get to Brown as the destination? Well, I think that's rather funny. I mean, I was there in California and most people had never heard of Brown back in 1971, 72. And in fact, my math teacher back in California, when I was accepted at both Brown University and Radcliffe College, because women didn't go to Harvard back then, they went to Radcliffe, took the classes together, but you got a separate degree. And my math teacher thought that I should go to Radcliffe because there'd be a better class of men to marry than there would be at Brown. So even for me, that was his assumption about why I would be going to college. In fact, I had plenty of opportunities. I also had Caltech trying to recruit me after having taken the national merit test. They wrote me a letter saying, we want you to know we now have 22 women. Don't you want to join them? I chose to go to the place that accepted me into the main school and had more than 22 women. (laughs) So you ended up at Brown, as I mentioned. But what was it like to be a woman in science at an institution like Brown and then later at MIT? This is also the time most girls didn't stick with math when they were in high school and therefore going on in physics became much more difficult. And by my second year there, I was the only woman in any of my physics classes. In fact, I had this one really quite lovely older professor who would come into the class each day and look around and smile and say, oh, good afternoon, lady and gentleman, and chuckle. And he did it every day the whole semester long. I think that there's a significant issue in this. 
I could look at this and him chuckling over it and think, yeah, look at how special I am. I must be really good. Whereas, of course, for a lot of people, you look at this and go, there's no other women. I must not belong here. And so when it's difficult, the only ones who make it through are the ones who don't care what other people think about them or don't notice what other people are thinking about them. And there's a lot of women for whom that's not true and they didn't stick with it. And what about when you're at MIT? Well, so when I went into MIT, same thing. I was the only woman that applied in geophysics that year. But it's noticeable that two years later, the incoming class was a third woman. I was on that cusp so that by 1976, when I'm applying to graduate school, they're accepting women. The expectation is that you can go in, but women my age hadn't stuck with the math in high school. And there's where we see one of those important issues. There is a pipeline issue that to be able to get through in science, there's a lot of preparation. And if at any point you get pushed out of it for whatever reason, high school is a big place where we change people's directions. In the late 60s, you got pushed out. Now, of course you don't. You go undergrad at Brown, graduate school for your PhD at MIT. I know that the story of Lucy Jones is that you traveled to China to do some research there. But after college, when you're actually looking for your career, was getting a job difficult? Well, I managed to create an extra challenge in that my last year in graduate school, I met the man who became my husband, who's a seismologist from Iceland who was coming and studying in the United States. We got married just three months after we got our PhDs, which we had gotten just five days apart. At first, I took a postdoc where he was already engaged down at Columbia University, and we got those first two years. Then when we're going out and looking for a job, discovered what the two-body problem is. Here we are in the same field. We were, had started writing papers together. There's not many seismology jobs out there, and we needed to find a place that would take both of us. And that's part of how we ended up in Southern California. There's more interest in seismology here. And he had a job at USC while well, I got one with the U.S. Geological Survey. And what was it like? You're in the survey as a woman scientist. I know that you're not alone because USG has a lot of diversity in its ranks. What was it like when you started in, what, 82, 83? In 83, and I was alone. So there was one other woman, geophysicist, who worked for the USGS earthquake program up in Northern California, and me. We were the only ones at that point. In Pasadena, there were no women faculty at Caltech in seismology. Nobody was saying, don't do it, but... If I showed up at work wearing nice clothes, the assumption was that I was a secretary. Even if I dressed badly, which I tended to do to try and say, yes, I'm a geologist, somebody would come into the USGS office, see me, and I need to speak with Dr. Heaton, or I need to speak with Dr. Jones. And I'm like, uh, I am Dr. Jones. It wasn't that there was a push out, but there was just an assumption that if you were a woman, you couldn't possibly be the one that was worth talking to. It then became an interesting thing when we started having more earthquakes again, and I did interviews, and I became more popular. I think a chunk of that was when people are afraid, women are somewhat more comforting, and that actually the request for information after an earthquake is indeed a request for comfort at a time when people are feeling scared. So I became better known, I became interviewed, and there was once where I was giving probabilities about foreshocks and aftershocks, because that was research that I had just done. And there was a professor at Caltech, not in the Seismolab, who was really upset about that girl trying to predict earthquakes and how could she be possibly representing Caltech? She can't possibly know what she's been talking about. So there were still a few of those sort of things in the early years partly in a large part, just because there were so few of us around. So how do you think things have changed? Now, flash forward, right, 30 years, 
How has it changed for women in science? I think the pipeline issue is not as big as it was. Girls are doing math in high school, making it into college, doing the types of classes so that they can do that. I think there are still some pretty significant systemic issues, which is not anybody trying to do things wrong, but just the background of where things are. One of them is really about the issues of how do families fit in to work. I ended up working part-time for 10 years, and partly because that other woman who was there when I arrived at the USGS had also worked part-time for 15 years and still got into the National Academy of Sciences. So I went, oh, this is an acceptable way to do that. And it was pretty clear that if my husband had gone part-time, it would not have been accepted. And I think right there is a really core issue. In Iceland, they're rather famous for being how much greater gender equality, and my husband's Icelandic, and I think his attitudes have made a big difference. He never saw the kids as just my problem. We had to figure it out together. He always put in not just the time with the kids, but the emotional energy of taking responsibility for things. All of those are important because, in fact, raising kids is very difficult. Just before me, I know a woman a few years older than me who was literally kept out of a class of seismology at Berkeley because the professor told her he wasn't going to waste a spot on a woman who was just going to leave and go have kids. And you saw a lot of that in the 60s and 70s, the assumption that once you have children, there's no way the women were working. And we've moved away from that, but we haven't recognized that that requires a different attitude towards work. We've accepted the women working, but we haven't accepted the consequences of women working and what that does to our families and to our children and to the, all the rest of our lives. And I think that what's happening in Iceland, where they have the government paying parental leave and a part of it can only be taken by the husband, is a really important point because it means that when kids come, it is both the man and the woman who are taking time off from work. And if that's the expectation, then we won't have such a systemic bias about how the women are handling it. So your work over the years has illuminated really the situation that you have overcome, maybe sometimes by accident, but sometimes on purpose, as a way to achieve the life that you wanted for you, your work, and your family. What about for others that are now coming up behind you? What advice do you have to them? My advice probably is to go out there with your eyes open that what you are trying for and what you want. And I think that assuming that success in the current system is the only definition of achievement can't be there because the current system is very, especially in science, is really very competitive. It's very aggressive and what awards do you get? And you know, being a successful scientist doesn't have to just mean what awards you got or what papers you've gotten published. That's the way we evaluate it now. But there's also, have you created science that's good for the world? And you need to define your own definitions of success. And if that's my success is that I have wonderful kids and I'm gonna be with them, that's a successful way too. And I think just trying to get out of this mindset that the current competitive approach is the only way you succeed. We can't go forward that way. You need to look and see what you want for yourself. If you're going into science, why are you doing it? Many of us get into it because we want to understand the world. We want to create knowledge. We want to use technology to help others. And in practice, you can lose that to the competition for tenure for promotion. If you can stay focused on why you want to be a scientist, you're going to be a lot happier 
and happier people are just more successful people. Well, let's leave it there for now. Thank you, Lucy, for always being that person to offer insight based on your own experience. Until next time, I'm John Bwery with Dr. Lucy Jones and you getting through it. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Visit us online to get past shows and become a supporter at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Our music is performed by Josh Lee and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones. 